I'm Tom Zolder, and our guest today is Suzanne Nossel. She's the CEO of PEN America, and prior to that, she served as the CEO for Human Rights Watch, the executive director for Amnesty International, and she worked as a diplomat in the State Departments for Presidents Obama and Clinton. We're talking with her today about a report PEN America has commissioned called Losing the News, the decimation of local news and the search for solutions. Suzanne, why did you commission this report? We were increasingly concerned about press freedom here in this country with a president who had a track record, which we knew about even back then, of attacking reporters, denigrating reporters, calling the mainstream media fake news. And we worried that there wasn't a constituency for press freedom that had been activated across the country. And we recognized that our members of Pred America, Free Expression Organization, who are by and large writers, journalists, editors, translators, made up a natural group to be activated as that constituency. And we had members all across the country, although our programs at that point were quite centered on the coast. And so we went across to our members in different cities across the U.S. and began conversations about press freedom. And what came to the foreground very quickly was that the number one concern they had was the diminution of their local news outlets newspapers in their communities that they had long relied upon as mainstays for information coverage as kind of a locus of civic life had either closed, diminished their publication schedules, reverted away from print and onto a solely online distribution model, slashed their newsrooms, cut positions for investigative reporters, and What we heard from them really was that this was creating a deficit insofar as democracy, that there were stories that weren't being told, companies and politicians who weren't being held accountable for their decisions, issues of civic interest that weren't being uncovered or probed or brought to light, and that this to us seemed like a looming crisis for democracy and open discourse. And so we decided, we knew that journalism schools were increasingly preoccupied with this, and there had been some important work that had gone on to document the problem, but we wanted to really break it out into the mainstream through a report that we hope would reach a popular audience as well as an audience in Washington, D.C., where a policy conversation could be started about how to address this. Now, in your work as a diplomat overseas, did you see the convergence of this withering of local media with a corresponding rise of authoritarian regimes? Well, yes. I mean, one of the first tactics of any authoritarian, sort of the perhaps chapter one of the authoritarian playbook, you might say, is to go after an independent media. And we've seen President Trump do that, trying systematically to discredit mainstream professional journalism in the eyes of his supporters, calling it fake news, calling the press the enemy of the American people, demeaning individual reporters, riling up crowds at his rallies to target and ridicule journalists who are covering the proceedings. And that really is to sort of lay the groundwork to put forward an alternative truth, because If people don't believe the media, you can say whatever you want, and their criticisms and fact-checking are waved away with the hand. And we've seen that with a substantial segment of the American public. And if you look around the world, it's very much the same. There is no independent media in China. It's all state-controlled. In Russia, there are some independent media outlets, but they are 
targeted, menaced, kept away from substantial commercial opportunities that would really make them more viable and allow them to build bigger audiences. And so that is very much characteristic of authoritarian regimes. But what we see in the local news realm really is a related phenomenon, but one that's also distinct, which is it's really an economic crisis. It's not as if the mayors or the governors of cities and states across the country are targeting and threatening their local media outlets. You know, they aren't. But what has happened is just a radical transformation in terms of how Americans get their news. With the diminishing reach of print newspapers, the evaporation of print advertising, classified ads and display ads that used to power these media vehicles. And, you know, that was a quite a kind of remarkable convergence, but almost accidental in a sense that you had all of these department stores and auto dealerships and real estate developers who wanted to reach consumers and turned out a good way to do so for many decades was to put your ads in a print newspaper that would be delivered to somebody's doorstep. And so the byproduct of that is that people got informed that these media outlets grew and flourished and developed all these areas of coverage and expertise and ended up playing the central role in holding local officials accountable, as well as businesses, real estate developers, public agencies, and authorities and power sources of all kinds within the community. And so that's the robust local news ecosystem that many of us grew up with that really has been an undercut less by authoritarianism than by economic collapse. I'm reminded of a famous quote by A.J. Liebling, the uh, great press critic who said that the role of a free press is to inform, but the role of a newspaper is to make money. And of late, its ability to do that, to make money, has diminished. And your report says that 81% of Americans now go online for their news. And the flip side of that is that only 21% have paid for any kind of subscription service which leaves four-fifths of our country thinking that news is free and sort of expecting it to be free. What does this mean for our democracy? No, that's right. And unfortunately, as that system grew up, there was no revenue share mechanism that backed the local news outlets that often are the source of the information that people are getting through their Twitter or Facebook feeds. And the result is that all of that traffic and all of those eyeballs have migrated to social media leaving the news outlets without access to any revenue stream to monetize the interest of their audiences. And so it's been a pretty devastating transition. Some of the major national newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Washington Post, have found ways to rebuild their business models and build substantial subscription businesses that now are profitable. And that's been a pretty extraordinary success. But really, The advantage they have is one of scale. They have a national and an international reach. If you're the Dallas Morning News or the Denver Post, you're inherently reaching a smaller community that's interested in the issues that you're covering. And so it's just simply not possible to build that sort of national or international user base. And the options are much narrower. And we have seen local news outlets innovating and developing partnerships with local businesses and marketplaces to access local goods and services. There's been an infusion of philanthropic dollars that has helped to prop up the industry. So there has been some innovation, but 
it really doesn't come close to what we document in the report, which is really a $30 billion gap in revenue that has opened up as a result of this transformation and left local news outlets either shuttered or highly vulnerable. Your report quotes Margaret Sullivan, the author and public editor, who says, we don't know what we don't know, which sounds like a strange kind of tautology, but you know, I worked for 10 years as a local newspaper reporter, and I always wondered what stories we were missing. That was the unspoken question. Only so much can go into the newspaper. You could only discover so much. And what local media have been able to do even lately in this desiccated environment has been heroic. The Flint Journal did a tremendous work exposing the literal poisoning of the municipal waste supply. Your report cites a North Carolina newspaper that uncovered waste rolling downhill from a pig farm that was creating literally a toxic environment. And these are local journalists that are saving their readers from this poison. Is it possible to recreate that watchdog that we used to have on the local level? Yeah, I mean, I think we have some sense of it. There used to be beat reporters who would cover every committee in the state legislature. They would be looking at what's happening in health, what's happening in education, what's happening in clean air and clean water, what's happening in tax collection. And in most state houses across the country, those reporters have disappeared. And maybe you have one or two people who are trying to cover everything and their ability to delve into the depths of a politician who they have heard may be corrupt or to look into a cluster of disease that has opened up in a certain neighborhood and try to track down whether there's an environmental pollutant or follow up a lead about inflated performance numbers at a school are really limited. And so I think we have to assume that there are all sorts of stories that would be of interest to Americans that would enrich our civic discourse, that would help us hold power sources accountable that we are not hearing, reading, or able to act upon. And, you know, I think it does feed into this climate of distrust in our institutions when you have a lack of transparency and you have watchdogs that once were there but are now missing in action. And it's an invitation as well to those who are in positions of power to take advantage because the likelihood that they will be uncovered and found out has diminished, that nobody is watching them. And so to us, that really constitutes a drain on people's faith in civic life and democracy when they cannot rely on a free press to help uphold their interests, keep them informed, ensure that their rights and needs aren't run roughshod over. Your report is somewhat skeptical of what you call the billionaire savior. That is the Jeff Bezos figure who comes in with a fat wallet and buys up local institutions. Why is this not considered a good option? There's no question it's been a lifeline for a number of really incredibly valuable media outlets. You know, the LA Times certainly is one, the Washington Post, the Atlantic Magazine, and there are others that are able to do great journalism and to invest and to build their staffs and hire terrific reporters and editors, thanks to the largesse of millionaires and billionaires. But it doesn't represent a sustainable solution for the local news ecosystem across the country. There aren't enough of those beneficent billionaires where they do exist. You know, sometimes they have their own self-interest. You have Sheldon Adelson in 
Las Vegas, and people may not feel as good about the direction that he is taking local media outlets. So to put our local media in the hands of individuals singularly who have their own ideologies, their own business imperatives, I think poses a risk. It's a partial solution, but both there aren't enough to go around and the predilections and biases of those owners having overweening influence over our media ecosystem, I think is a worry. And we've also seen some instances with news outlets where the beneficent owner is willing to extend that lifeline for a while, but they sort of get tired of it after a time. You know, you had Chris Hughes, one of the founders of Facebook, who took over the New Republic with a lot of fanfare years ago and then discovered it was a money pit and sold it and had sort of pillaged the publication. So it was a shadow of its former self. And so while I think this may be a piece of the solution, it's certainly not sustainable, nor an approach that we would want to see take hold universally, even if it could. You've advocated for what you call a public interest media foundation, which would raise money through attacks on digital advertising. How realistic is this? Look, there are approaches like this that are being piloted in Europe. The results are not perfect to begin with. You know, we saw one experiment in Spain where the result was a dramatic loss of traffic to media outlets once their news was being monetized on social media platforms. So that's not a path we would want to go down. We need to ensure that there's a reliable revenue stream that flows back to actually fund the reporting. But I think ultimately, we need to look at public solutions. And one of the things we've called for is the creation of a congressional commission that would examine the future of local news. And this is an issue of public financing of journalism that hasn't really been thoroughly examined in decades. And honestly, it's a solution that we came to Hesitantly, we didn't think when we started this report that we were going to recommend an expansion of a public or governmental role in the local news landscape. As a free expression organization, our strong preference would be, frankly, to keep government out of it or keep their role minimized because we want the media to be free. We don't want it to be subject to the influences of our politics or the whims of government officials. But when we looked at the size of the problem and the extent to which other solutions, be it parachuting billionaires or hedge funds or philanthropy or innovative new business models, we recognize that even collectively, they would only address a fraction of the gap in revenue that has opened up over the last decade or so, and that public funding needed to be part of the solution. It does work well in parts of Europe and Scandinavia, organizations like the BBC that are well-respected and I think quite amply safeguarded from public influence. So we think those are models that deserve attention and the hard look. We also do think that there has to be the creation of a revenue stream that is going to flow back from these vast technology giants that have become 80% of Americans' primary source of news to the news creators and news gatherers that provide that information and carry out the hard work of reporting in order to inform the public. So that has to be part of the puzzle. What strikes me about that proposal is that it's deeply rooted in 20th century American media. I'm reminded of what Walter Whitman 
wrote in a treatise that he called Liberty and the News, in which he called for just such a publicly founded, publicly funded institution to help Americans sort through the issues of the day. Your report makes mention of the Carnegie Commission, which led to the founding of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which has been an unqualified success. We already know how to do this, don't we? Yeah, I agree. I think we have to update that paradigm for the digital age, but that it does, it should give us some confidence that it can be done and that a public news outlet need not be under the thumb of self-serving politicians. Of course, you know, we see now some very distressing developments of places like the Voice of America, where the Trump administration is asserting itself over a government-controlled media outlet that historically has operated with a good deal of journalistic independence and now is being distorted for political ends. And there's been a cleaning of house where editors and journalists have been fired. And so I think that's a cautionary note. And yeah, this should be approached with a good deal of trepidation and care. But I think you're absolutely right that there is a history in this country of doing public funding of journalism successfully, and that's something we can build on. Can you talk about the role of venture philanthropy? That is to say, those nonprofit institutions which have helped fill the gap. We've seen institutions like ProPublica, Stephen Waldman's Report for America, which parachutes young journalists into regional newspapers the educational nonprofit reporting entity called Chalkbeat. Are these workable solutions for the current morass? Well, I think what's good about the philanthropic model, first of all, it takes on kind of a diversity of forums, and you have a whole set of different foundations that now are in the business of supporting journalism in some form, whether it's the Ford Foundation or the Knight Foundation or, for example, the McCormick Foundation, which has a particular interest in the local news ecosystem in Chicago, where they are headquartered. And so there's some diversity there where it's not a single owner bearing down on an individual publication with their own interests. You're putting reporters into hundreds of newsrooms across the country. I think those people operate with a good deal of independence and they report to their editors. And I don't think there's a centralized effort to necessarily control the sorts of stories that they're writing or what they're covering. So I think it's positive in that sense. It has seeded some innovation. There is great reporting, absolutely, that is being done by many of these outlets, ProPublica being one of them, but there are also many at the local level that are operating on a nonprofit basis and doing important work and filling gaps that were left open by the shrinkage of local news outlets. And so I think it's a positive step, but again, I don't think it's an answer. I mean, a long-term answer for a number of reasons. One, philanthropy is fickle. We've seen this at Penn America. One thing that's been very striking to us, we do a lot of work on a related issue which is the explosion of disinformation in our politics right now. We're doing a lot of work in the run-up to the election. And one of the obvious solutions, when we did a big report on that issue a few years ago, it struck us that we needed to inoculate the public and make people aware of how to recognize disinformation, how to better understand the news that they absorb now that they've transitioned from print newspapers to gleaning the vast bulk of their news online. They need to be able to discern, you know, what is a credible outlet? What's a byline? You know, how do you evaluate the journalist who's written this piece? How do you know whether their sources are credible? 
And there's a whole field of media literacy that about 10 or 12 years ago had grown up to try to educate people in these skills. And for a few years, it was sort of a philanthropic darling. And there were a lot of foundations that were involved. But you know what? Over time, they lost interest. They moved on to other things and the funding dried up. And so I think that's a risk for journalism. It has become sort of a hot area with a lot of expansion, but really with the idea that philanthropy is going to I think sort of tied the sector over and foster innovation until a point where news outlets could find their footing with sustainable business models. And I think that may be unrealistic. And I don't think philanthropy is necessarily in it for the long game. It's also true that philanthropists have their own interests. You have conservative and liberal philanthropies that are funding, you know, very particular areas of work, whether it's on criminal justice or the environment, but they most certainly have a point of view. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is affecting the news that we get. What do we do about the problem of disinformation, the famous fake news that overwhelmed us in 2016? I think it's really disturbing to see the degree to which that is taking hold in this country with this kind of hardened core of our population that has become inured to the idea that the press is to be distrusted, that it has an unsavory agenda, that it's out to get the president. You know, how do we counter that? I think we need to raise a generation of youth who are educated about the news that they read and who know how to discern credible, reliable sources of professional journalism from, you know, the fraudulent crap trap that they can so easily encounter online. And really, people don't have those tools and people end up sharing and amplifying false information because they've never been told how to identify. And so a lot of the work that we're doing at Penn involves workshops to educate people, including not just citizens, but sort of nodes in the system, like educators, teachers, librarians who have the ability to inform others. We've just put out a series of videos involving celebrities like John Lithgow and Alan Cumming and Jennifer Egan, Britt Bennett, and others talking about disinformation just to kind of popularize an awareness of this issue and encourage people to be more discerning when they see something that's surprising to look into it before they share it or raise an alarm bell about it. You know, one thing we've learned is that increasingly people don't even read the news articles that they're absorbing through their Instagram or Twitter feeds. And so headlines become much more important, recognizing that the headline may be the only thing that a consumer ever absorbs about your news story, I think needs to inflect how our newsrooms are doing their job and how they think about what they're putting out. So I think there's some responsibility there. I think there've been some mistakes that the mainstream media has made that have sort of fed into this sense that they can't be relied on or are biased. So I think extra vigilance is warranted there. And I think the other piece of it is the approach of the social media companies, which have historically been deliberately hands-off when it comes to addressing the issues of disinformation that pollute their platforms. And I think there are legitimate free speech concerns that arise because the boundary line between, you know, what we think of as hyperbole or hoo-ha or just a straightforward negative political ad of your and something that crosses the line into disinformation isn't always entirely clean or discernible. There are some gray areas there. And so while I think we need the platforms to do more 
in terms of aggressively policing disinformation, and particularly information and advertising where the source of the media is obscured, where you think you're seeing a invitation to an event from a Black Lives Matter group in Texas, but in fact, the person who's paid for you to see that ad is in Moscow. That's the kind of thing that platforms absolutely need to become more aggressive in addressing. Well, for those of us who really care about the role of local newspapers, the role of independent TV and radio, it's really the tissue that holds our country together. This has been nothing short of heartbreaking to see what's happened in the last 15 years. And I'm reminded of one of the great quotes about newspapers from the legendary editor, Pete Hamill. He said, newspapers will break your heart. And you've sounded a loud, loud alarm bell here, Suzanne. And credit goes to you and PEN America for producing this report. And I want to thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me.